What I've found is that oftentimes when we run into people, we say, hey, how are you? What we don't ask people, and if you want to try this to really unnerve somebody, go up to them and say, hey, what are you? <laughs> we always ask, yeah, how are you feeling? What are you thinking about? We never like, justify your existence. What are you? Um, and growing up in West Virginia and then being in Oxford, I actually did get asked that a couple times. What are you? Um, but how would you, how do we go about, how do we go about answering that? On one hand, there's a really simplistic version of that. You can say, well, you know, I'm 96% in a very reductionistic sense, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, um, carbon mainly. Uh, and you say, well, okay, but, uh, so is my tomato plant. So seems like you're undershooting just a little bit there what it means to be human. Or I can come in on the other side of that and be like, I'm the master of my destiny. I'm dripping with the divine. I've got this all under. And you're like, nah, I think you overshot it there a little bit. Um, and so we live somewhere in between tomato and transcendent, right? Um, and so we're dealing with our identity in that platform of what does it mean to live in that space? And so sometimes, and it really unnerves people if they don't have the, the data points or like, is he married, or does he have this degree, or where is he from? You know, if people don't know those things about you, it unsettles them. And so sometimes I introduce myself to a college audience with no background except I say, hi, my name is Nathan Rittenhouse, and I'm a carbon-based life form made in the image of God. And we start from there. And they all lean on their seats like, hmm, what's going on here? Where does this idea come from? Carbon-based life form. Yeah, made of the dust, I'm of the earth, um, but there's something different about humanity. And where does that come from? And let me just read to you quickly from Genesis chapter 1. Um, I understand that you've been studying through Mark. Mark begins with what? The beginning. Just as Genesis begins with the beginning. And so Mark is pointing us back to foundational things to remind us of something. And oftentimes when I'm praying and walking, I say, Lord, would you remind me of something old and reveal to me something new? And I want both of those in balance. It's kind of like uh, singing an old hymn. You add a little bit of caffeine to some of those, but uh, the, the oldness is still there, right? And so we want to be reminded of things um, that are old. Those are the starting points, the foundational blocks of this. And so you can follow along here on the screen just as I read for a second. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over all the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so right from the beginning, because it is a foundational thing, we have God saying, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. And so the first element there that I think I want to point to that pops out, you know this, but sometimes we just have to go back and, and recalibrate and get our feet under it and catch our breath a little bit. And so theologically, that's what we're doing. We're catching our breath here for a second. Before we think about how we engage the world around us, we have to remember where our feet are firmly planted. And so the first one that stands out here is, hey, let us make man. We are created beings. And if we're created, that means not accidental, not the result of chance, but a purposeful act of God and created to be in his image and in his likeness. Also important to point out here, men and women are both from the beginning created as good creatures made in the image of God. We're neither animals nor angels. We're not solely physical, though we are from the dust, and we're not solely spiritual, though we are made by a spiritual being. So again, you see that 
what I jokingly called between the tomato and the transcendent there. Um, and, it's, and it's not like this idea of the doctrine of Imago Dei or the image of God that it's important just for philosophers and ivory towers, but this really deeply does matter for our own existential questions about who am I and do I matter and why am I here and am I significant? Uh, am, am I significant? All of these questions are rooted in this understanding of ourselves, and it really tells us something profound about how we relate to people around us, but also, uh, even more importantly, how we relate to God. It's interesting, as Professor John Lennox pointed out one time, he said, isn't it interesting that humanity is the type of thing that God could become? In the sense of Jesus coming in the incarnation. Um, That's something that has enough dignity conferred upon it that it's the type of thing that God could inhabit and could become. Um, So people have grappled with this. C.S. Lewis wrote this in a talk called The Weight of Glory. He said, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. And I'll explain this. He isn't going all crazy mythological on us. Um, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. And what he's saying there is he's not talking about the deification of humanity. He's saying that in its original created form, the purity and the goodness which God attributed to humanity is the type of thing that you'd be like, whoa, that's awesome, about humanity. And this is, we're, not, we're not worshiping humanity here, but we're re- reminding ourselves of a conferred dignity that happened on this. Um, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was walking by the church where he gave this message, and there was a homeless guy sleeping in the rain in the corner of the door asleep. And I just stood there and watched this man sleep for a little bit with these words ringing in my head of on the other side of that door, a man preaching and proclaiming about the value that God conferred upon humanity. And the great feature that comes out of this idea of being made in the image of God is that the the universality of it is is phenomenally important for how we think and how we just structure our world around us. And so it's the sacredness of life that's conferred on everyone independent of race and gender and economic status and age and fetal state and marital status and blah, blah, blah. All the other variations and categories have nothing to do with the consistency of God's regard for his people. He created them as good. And that's why I often sit in an, air, or in an airport or in an airplane while people are boarding, and I just remind myself, and think of this, as I come down the aisle, that person's made in the image of God, and that person's made in the image of God, and that person's made in the image of God, and God has a sense of humor, and that person's made in the image of God. No. Because um, <laughs> you, run, you run into some people, and you're like, oh, that's easy to see, you know, and you're like, oh, okay, he's, he's a creative guy. Yeah, no. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a grounding experience for me. Uh, Sorry that I made that trivial. It's a grounding experience for me to view humanity through what God says about humanity. To put myself back in that posture of saying that the incredible beauty of the diversity that we have in the world, um, to remind myself of the true identity of humanity because it radically alters the way that I relate to them. Now, this, because of where we live, is uh, at one point called self-evident, right? Self-evident that all men are created equal. Well, wait a second. First of all, when they wrote that, they weren't that great at treating everybody equally. And secondly, that's not self-evident. What is self-evident about that? I mean, if I was 6'6", I'd have a better shot at the NBA. All kinds of things about my uh, physiology, my intellectual capacities, where I was born, the family that I grew up in are all totally out of my realm of control. And they do make a difference in the way in which our world values and judges and compares and so this idea that we live in a place that supposedly all people are created equally, that only, where else does that come from? 
there's no other view in the world that says something similar to this. That independent of, what are the details? What are the little details that he says about the humans that are made in his image? It doesn't. He doesn't say that fuzzy-headed ones from West Virginia. You know, the, the details aren't there. It's a, it's a general statement. And so this becomes important to recognize that if you are a Christian, you're going to engage the world in a very, very different way than the people who aren't Christians around you. Now, there is some borrowing of the Christian way of thinking into secular culture. It's what Francis Schaeffer called stealing cookies from the Christian cookie jar, um, where you're taking an idea that I like out of Christianity and applying it into my worldview, though it's secular. It's still a Christian idea, even if you are a Judeo-Christian idea, even if you get it from there. And this is why this is important, because here comes the part where our cultural engagement gets challenging. And if you want the like 45-minute version of what I'm about to say next, there's a guy named Michael Ramsden who gives a talk on this called The Ontological Root of the Gospel. And in that, basically, this is what he says. He says, okay, how do we identify ourselves? You know, I made the tomato joke at the beginning. But when you meet somebody and you want to get to know them, what types of questions do you ask? Where are you from? What do you do? Uh, where'd you study? Who's your family? Stuff like that. Okay. But then um, beyond that, when we really know somebody, then what do we say? We say, hey, Will, how are you feeling today? So feeling categories. Uh, hey, what are you thinking about today? So uh, excess, you know, brain activity, critical thinking. Or what is it that you're doing? And so these categories of thinking and feeling and doing become kind of main pillars by which we evaluate and construct our identities. Um, I haven't seen one, but, uh, you know, the idea of a milk stool that has three legs. The stool is on top, and then it has three legs. And you have your thinking and your feeling and your doing as the supporting structures for this identity that's up on top. That's how our world works. And unfortunately, because most of us, our thinking and our feeling isn't uh, something that's externally, externally visible, what we do becomes the foundation of who we are. So I do this. And that's why you see people who are, you know, like 27 years old and a retired quarterback go through a huge existential crisis because they no longer know what their life means because I can't do this thing. Um, but it also happens to people when they retire, when we switch communities or jobs. If we have um, a construct of I am based off of what I do, um, that's actually how most of our world operates and it's how it judges people based off of what they do. And we can all sit here and say, oh yeah, intellectually, th- theoretically, we value all people. But think about the, the jobs and the positions and your neighbors. No, we live in a very, very judging world based off of activity. Here's the challenge. If my identity and my certainty and stability about who I am is an identity that's constructed up on top of you know, one of these pillars or all a combination of those three, uh, none of us separate those out totally, and, and in the thinking category, suddenly I have a question, a big question or a big problem with life, then my worldview collapses in that direction. Or if I have an, have an identity that's based off of an experience and then I no longer have that experience, what happens? My identity collapses. Or if it's based off of something that I do and we've talked about that. So it's, it's a bit of an unstable thing because it can, be, it can be undercut and undermined. Christianity takes that image of the stool and flips it upside down and says, what if you are given an inherent value and worth and identity as someone made in the image of God period. That grounds who you are. And then out of that flow your thinking and your feeling and your doing. You get the analogy there, the illustration? Uh, It's a flip. And so what happens is if it's flipped and I recognize that I have a value before a holy God, the valuable in his sight, then when in my thinking that flows out of that, if I have a big question, does that undercut who I am? 
No, it just means I have some intellectual legwork to do. And if, it's, if my um, relationship with God is based off of my emotions, and I no longer have that experience of, you know, cloud nine at every moment, does that undermine the reality of how God feels about me? No. All of the greatest prophets of God went through those moments um, of, God, where are you? Uh, read the Psalms. Read the old prophets. Uh, it'd be better if I hadn't been born, Elijah said, after like one of the most massive showdowns ever. Um, you know, so there's this um, fidgetiness and finickiness to human emotion that is not a good foundation for our identity. And likewise, then again, if what we do flows out of that and then somebody critiques our action, do we feel that as a threat to who we are? So if you run into Will on the street and you say, what do you do? He's like, oh, I'm pastor of All Souls Church. And you're like, I think pastors are idiots. Now, he might take that personally a little bit, but it's not going to completely disrupt. He doesn't feel like you're threatening him. The challenge is, is that, so as Christians, like we, that subconsciously makes sense in our minds. We're like, yeah, that's the format and the paradigm that I'm living out of. However, when we start, so we're living kind of bottom up and the rest of the world's living top down. And so what happens then, as we start talking about behaviors and ideas and, and relating to people with this model, that if you have an activity, that is, if you have an identity that is based off of an activity, and then that activity comes under scrutiny, you don't feel it as a critique of a behavior, you feel it as a threat to who you are. Does that make sense? You no longer think, oh, they're just critiquing an idea or a behavior. They're like, why do you hate me? And so it produces a culture where disagreement is viewed as hatred or a threat. Um, Now, that's not an insurmountable problem, but it's something worth us having in the back of our minds when we're talking about Christian ideas, Christian behavior, Christian theology, Christian thought, the uh, actions within the church. Um, it's, it's that in our, a lot of our engagement and conversations, um, <laughs> yeah, that's why the question starts. Hey, why do Christians hate fill-in-the-blank people in, in Q&A? Because it's, it's, it's believing that if anybody says anything about this activity, it's a, it's a head-butting conflict. Now, we can say, okay, well, I'm made in the image of God. That doesn't give me, a, you know, everybody is, is well, what about, what does it mean to be a Christian? And there's a whole lot of other stuff in there, you know, after Genesis 1, there are, you know, only 66 more books of the Bible there or whatever. So, you know, there's, there's some more information here that we have to push into. And so we have to think about where is all this leading? What does that mean I have the, the possibility and the potential and the capability for? Um, there's a, uh, a sense in which, yes, made in the image of God, there's an there's a inherently relational element here um, that there are things for us to do. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the, the relational nature of that, um, being made in the image and the likeness. And so there's a sense here where I like what one theologian, his name is Jack Davis, he put it this way. And he said, if you want a universal definition of salvation that applies to pretty much any religious system of thought or metaphysical construct or whatever that has a concept of salvation, it goes like this, that to be saved is when my true self is in proper relationship with ultimate reality. So when my true self is in proper relationship with ultimate reality. Now, ultimate reality could be uh, some kind of cosmic oneness, it could be a sense of nirvana, it could be a sense of nothingness, it could be Allah. Um, Fill in the blank there. Uh, and then proper relationship. What does that mean for me to interact and interface with that? Uh, and then the true self. Who am I actually? And so, of course, as Christians, we believe the ultimate reality is personal and knowable. Uh, 
it's one of the challenging things to, to wrap our heads around from a Christian concept is that we do believe that spirit precedes matter, that that which is spiritual is more real than that which is material. Uh, it's good just to pause and remind ourselves of that every once in a while. We believe that the material came out of that which is spiritual, which is actually the popular view around the rest of the world. But living in a material world, in a materialistic culture, um, it's easy for us to drift back, drift back into this concept of, of what I actually am being reduced to material. And so we have to remember that, that spiritual element of who we are that allows for relationship with something beyond us. It's what one person, um, I think it was John Polkinghorn, said, you know, when we think scientifically, we're thinking about the things that we transcend, and we're looking at processes that go below us. But when we think theologically, we're thinking about that which transcends us, and we're asking purpose questions. And so we're living in between. Again, the tomato and the transcendent, right? We're looking at scientifically exploration and the processes, and then we're looking up and asking the how, the why, uh, the, the purpose-type questions. And so we're living in that and hanging in that. And so what does that mean for us to be, quote, saved? What is the proper relationship between who I really am and who God is? Now, let me just, <clears throat> a little bracketed thought here. When we start talking about salvation um, and relationship with God, the claim that gets, so basically you walk into this one, it's like a rat trap. This thing is loaded and just waiting for you to step on it. As soon as you start talking about truth, wham! Isn't that inherently exclusive and arrogant and prideful and disastrous and myopic and bigoted, you know, to, to believe that there's only one exclusive type of truth or there's only one way to God, that sort of thing? Um, and so when, when people say, you know, isn't it arrogant to say that there's only one way for this to work uh, or there's only one way, we need to ask the question, only one way to what? Because when Jesus showed up, he says, what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so we can think about what does the way, truth, and life, and all of that mean, and that's very fascinating. But think there, he didn't say, um, here's an interesting true thing that you should know. He didn't say, here's an interesting true thing you should experience. He didn't say, here's an interesting um, true thing that you should do something about. He said that the point of truth is not neutral. The point of truth is to put us in relationship with the Heavenly Father. Now, at that point... Jesus is making a claim that nobody else in any other religion is making to put us in relationship with the Heavenly Father. Hmm. That's blasphemous in most other systems of thought. And so it's not the case that Jesus is just showing up on the street corner with a different color kickball. He's talking about an entirely different game. He's uncontested in what he's claiming, that there would be a relational element that's possible in a personal way. Now, because all, you know, other world religions have, there's a relationship, whether it's submission or emptying or all kinds of other things, but the New Testament picks this up in a very fascinating way. And let me just read you a couple passages um, that talk about this as we think about what it means for us to be in relationship with that which is ultimate as it pertains to our identity. So, we find these passages, um, I'm going to read the first ones from Philippians 3, uh, starting in verse 7, and, and you don't have to, I'm going to go through a couple, so if you're really fast, you can, but don't worry about it if not. Um, this is Paul writing in Philippians uh, chapter 3, and he says, whatever, I've, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he's saying, hey, all the good things that I've done, so here's a rejection of my identity based off what I've done. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So there is a knowing element to this in order that I may gain Christ. And here's the line, and be found in him, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So again, this isn't a righteousness that's constructed bottom up, it's flipped around. Not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him, in his death, and that by 
any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so, oftentimes we, you know, you hear people say, oh, I invited Jesus into my heart and that sort of thing. Um, actually, a large percentage of the New Testament passages that talk about a relationship talk about us being in Him, that I may be found in Him. When I was in college, I was walking across campus for some reason, not going to the football game, I don't know, and the president of the college walked by, and I knew him, and he said, hey, Nathan, I had to leave the game early. He said, do you want my seat? And I was like, yeah. So he reached in his pocket and pulled out his gold founder, whatever, platinum thing card, and handed it to me. He said, yeah, you just go in and go up to the steps, and I'll let you in. It's like, all right. And not being the dapper-dressed dude that I am now, I was looking like a college kid walking across campus. So I go up to the president's box because I got this card in my pocket, and I start walking in, and these nice young ladies walk over and say, I'm sorry, sir, this box is only reserved for... Let me show you to your seat. Um, Had the magic ticket in my pocket. That I may be found in him. I'm with that guy. That I may be found in him. That my identity, that that... The, the fullness of the image that is made known to us in the person of Jesus, that I may be found in that fullness. I'm with this guy, that I may be found in him. But then there's the flip side of that too. Because um, there, there is that language about that he would be in me. And so in John 14, Jesus answered them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Or again in John 17, 26, I made known to them, he's praying, I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so you get it both ways. You get that I may be found in him and that he would be in me because of what it is that he asked of me. I got to quote my grandpa here because old guys have a way of saying things that are like, oh yeah, you've thought about that for a while. And so the way he phrased it to me one time was this. He said, I in him is my salvation. He in me is his lordship. I in him is my salvation. That I may be found in him. When the day of reckoning comes, <laughs> I'm with this guy. Pull out the card. Righteousness comes. But in the day-to-day living of life, that he would be in me, his lordship. Yes, this changes the way that I do things because, and we're going to talk about authority tomorrow, the guy who's in charge has something for me to do. I in him is my salvation. He in me is his lordship. Now, doesn't that just sound great? Except if you really are chafed by this idea because it applies that there's some type of authority structure that goes beyond us. And that's why I had a good friend one time. He's like, Nathan, the most difficult thing about what you believe as a Christian is that you don't, you don't believe that I know what's best for me. I'm like, well, that's not just Christians. A lot of us believe that we don't know what's best for us. Think back over your life. There are all kinds of things that I've wanted that weren't good for me. Um, but it is true because it, it, it's perceived that there's some sort of, of threat to my identity if I'm uh, dependent on somebody else. And we live in a nation of independence and, you know, great all this, you know, the independence language and being your own person. Um, it's fascinating. We, we wrestle with the desire for independence and community at the same time. Um, we'll talk about that later, but that's a, a real tension that's there. But this idea of my, my independence... I want to be my own man. When I was like four years old, I was having an argument with my mom, and my grandpa, same grandpa, showed up. And he's listening to that, and we were going somewhere together, and we got outside, and he's like, Nathan, you knew your mom was right, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, why did you keep arguing with her? And I'm four at this point. I'm like, Grandpa, sometimes you just got to be your own man. Um, and I don't know where that comes from. My dad never talked. Like, you know, it's, it's just in us. I just want to be my own man. 
right? Um, and so there's a sense that if I submit myself to something else, that somehow that's an infringement on who I am. And so the Christian message is this, is that my dependency is not an infringement on my dignity, rather it's the foundation of my identity. Made in the image of God, that I may be found in Him. I am highly dependent on people in this world, like I don't know who made my belt, you know, that kind of thing, like, or who grew the vegetables that fed the man that made my belt, you know, whatever. Just pull that off, like, by every single thing that you touch. We can foster this idea of our independence, but it's a bit of, a, it's a bit of an illusion. And the same thing is true when we think about, oh, no, I am the master of my own destiny. Are you? How's that working out for you? You know, um, and so we, we rebel against this, but miss out on the deep satisfaction of stepping into that, of saying that my dependency is not an infringement on my dignity, Rather, it's the foundation of my identity that I may be found in him, that I'm made in the in- image of God. You, you hear this relational, connected to something beyond me type language that's crucial to who we are. It also means this, and this is, I think, one of the, the fun things about it, is that it means that I don't go out to find myself. I don't have to go sit on a mountaintop. I don't have to go on this um, existential journey to discover it. Now, has God given you gifts and abilities and talents and unactualized potential in your life and there are great things out there for you to explore? Absolutely. But those things that you're going to do that are going to be awesome aren't who you are is the argument that I'm making. And so the thing that we say is not go find yourself, but hey, when you go out there to conquer the world, remember who you are. So our identity, our true identity is something we reflect on and we remember. I mean, what's up with all those festivals in the Old Testament anyway? Remember who you are. Why do we haul these rocks out of the river and stack them? Remember who you are. Why do we put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost? Remember who you are. Why is there a rainbow? Remember, you know, all this stuff, it's about remember, 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 celebrate, remember, tell your children to remember. Because our identity isn't something to be found out there. It's something that God has already established. It's the bottom up, not the top down, right? And that's just a phenomenally secure place to live life from. That's not saying there aren't challenges and you don't meet boneheaded people and you know, you know, all the, you know how life works. It's not to say that, but it means that I don't have this nail-on-the-chalkboard kind of life of on edginess of, like, i got to just go sit on a mountaintop in Nepal and find myself kind of thing um, that's continually happening. And a uh, whole other rabbit trail we could go down is how we look to other humans to fulfill those desires that we have. Um, that's a thought. So we're not moving in the direction of self-creation. It's a reflection of whose we are. You know, sometimes we get in, like, all these fun things, and you're like, oh, that's interesting to think about. And then it's like, oh, wait a second. There's a scripture about that. Psalm 100. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Isn't it fascinating that it moves from the stability of our identity and being God's straight into thanksgiving and joy? Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And here you see the psalmist doing a better job in three lines than I'm going to do in 45 minutes of putting this together of just like a simple reminder. And out of that foundational reminder comes a life of praise. Why? Because who is it that we are? Who's giving the commands? And what does Jesus say? I no longer call you servants, but... Friends, because the servant doesn't know his master's business. And so Jesus is inviting us not into some type of, you know, like the ancient Near Eastern view where the gods created humans to work, to make food for them. 
And so they were just there to gather food for the gods. You know, it's not some kind of like maniacal, <laughs> I wonder how I can make them suffer um, and work for me kind of thing. No, he's calling us into a plan. And it's, uh, it's just essential that we get this right because it has consequences really for actually everything we do because our, what we perceive to be our purpose in life is directly connected to our identity. When you ask, what is something for, you got to know what it is first. What is this for? There's a, a joke about uh, a couple students that were taking their physics final exam, and uh, the, the final question was, using a barometer, determine the height of a tower. So most of the students knew how to do it. You take the barometric pressure at the bottom, you climb to the top of the tower, you take the barometric pressure, and you work it out. Like, okay, that's the right answer. There's another way you could figure it out. You could throw the barometer off the top of the tower and time it, figure it out that way. Or you could, I guess, look at the shadow of the barometer and measure that and measure the shadow of the tower and figure it out. So students were writing all of these things, and there was one student who had absolutely no idea how to do this math problem. And so he wrote, I would take the barometer, find the person that built the tower, and say, hey, I'll give you this really cool barometer if you tell me how tall your tower is. (laughs) That's probably the most accurate way to do that, right? And so... But that's funny because it's, an, it's assumed that the creator of the thing knows the most about it. That the creator of the thing knows the most about it. And so when we ask, what is this for? What is the purpose of it? We can make conjectures about microphones, the stools, whatever. Um, does the creator of it know what's best for it? Yeah. Does it know what it's for? And so our purpose, therefore, you can see how it's closely linked to our identity. And tomorrow when we talk about authority, we're going to bring some of that in and thinking about um, kind of what that means to have our purpose linked to our identity. But it, it, it spools off like this, in my mind. Um, you can't, once you start thinking this way, you, you just can't get through the New Testament without saying how great the Father's love for us. That we would be called children of God, the, re, the relational language, the deep flowing. Why does Jesus always pray Father? Not because he's like some chauvinist. Some, it's, it's the deeply, deeply relational view of respect, but also relationship held in tension, the, the consequences there. Jesus says, um, he's like, hey, your, your, your mother and brothers are here to pick you up. And he's like, no, who am I? Who's my mother? And who are my brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of my Father. And so there's this invitation into being part of what God is doing, to be in him, that, he may be, that I may be found in him, and that he would be in me, and, and a response to his love, and not just this metaphysical, intellectually curious thing, but this really personal, experiential, relational element of being part of what God is doing. Now, important note here. You can't do this on your own. And Jesus knew that, and that's why he said, it's better that I go. Because when I go, I'm going to send somebody who can help you sort this out. The Holy Spirit. The Comforter. What's a Comforter do? He convicts, he guides, he teaches, and he glorifies. And so there's a sense in which we can get all hyped up and jazzed about this idea. Like, oh, that makes, that makes great sense. But are completely unable to live that out unless we allow God to do the doing. He's the one who moves first. That's what we learned from Genesis. Whatever happened there, God started it. And whatever happens in our lives, God starts it. And it's by his spirit and his continuous action that we live lives of obedience because we recognize that we have a gracious master. How does this pull out? How does this play out in an everyday life? I think for me, it's easy to be a visionary and to think long-term and three years down the road and all this stuff of um, 
You know, oh, if we got this person to do this and moved over here and did this, we could start this network and plan this, and then we could, ref- you know, and my wife says, hey, what should we have for lunch? I say, well, that's a far more practical question. Um, and so the challenge for me in this is not, is not knowing that it's true. That's the easy part for me. It's the making it personal in a day-to-day, in a moment-by-moment, walking in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? And that means that I need to be the kind of guy that gets up and before I open the door to step out into the world to say, Father, what do you have for me today? What do you want me to see? What do you want me to hear? Who can I, who can I be helpful to? What set of skills do I have that will be valuable to somebody else? Who can I encourage? Who will encourage me? What do you have for me to see today? And to pull all of this from the 30,000-foot view to the core of my soul and to not worry about tomorrow. It has enough worries of its own and to pull it back into now. Made in the image of God, that I may be found in him. Isn't it fascinating that when Jesus did awesome stuff, people glorified God? How did that work out? Is that how we do that in our culture? If we do something awesome, God gets the credit for it? No, you get more Twitter followers. Um, How did God do that? How did Jesus do that? There's an old retired Mennonite uh, seminary professor that I would see sometimes walking down the street, and he would always say this to me. He'd be like, Nathan, this is my old man voice, are you living a doxological life? He's very quiet. Are you living a doxological life? What a seminary professor question. Are you living a life that glorifies God? Are you living a life that glorifies God? And that's the direction that, that I want to grow. It's what my wife and I pray. Lord, would you help us live our lives in such a way that when people look at us, they're impressed by you? Because there are core elements there of that being made in the image of God that points back beyond itself to the Creator. When I'm in a museum and I see a beautiful piece of artwork, you know what? I actually don't take a picture of the artwork. I take a picture of the little plaque to see who did it. I'm curious about the artist. Where do they live? What was their life like? What, made, what inspired them to do that? What image is stamped on this piece of artwork? I'm curious about it. And God created the entire universe and all that was in it and said it was good and then stamped his image on it. An image of God. and said that it was very good. The image points back to the artist, to the creator, to that which transcends when we're living right. And then in doing so, all that other stuff falls into place, right? That he gave dominion over the fish of the sea and things that fly. Yeah, we have stuff to do here. God put us in a garden, gave us opposable thumbs and gray matter. We can do stuff. It's awesome. But it's because it's his world we're taking care of. His money we're managing. His people that we're caring for. Did you notice in that when it talks about he gave them dominion over all the stuff, what was left out of that? Other people. He didn't put us in charge of taking the lives of other people, of judging in that way. Now, he's not anti-government. We'll talk about boundaries. But let's think about the limits of what it is that we're in charge of. And oftentimes, the angst in my life comes when I try to operate uh, above my pay grade, let's say, in the sight of God. So I want to know what God has for me. And that starts with remembering who I am. And let me just share one story. I've shared it many times before in different places, but it, to, for me, it, it links these things together, and then we'll move into a time of questions. And it goes like this. When I was living in Boston, we had um, a recycling dumpster at the end of our uh, street, 
And on uh, Fridays when I got back from work or home from class, I would take my little two-year-old daughter, and I had, we had a barrel of recycling. I would carry the barrel to the dumpster, and she always wanted to help, but she was two, so she carried one milk jug. I carried the barrel. She carried the milk jug. We would go down the street, actually down three flights of stairs and then down the street. This took forever because we had to stop and name the squirrels, and her shoe fell off. You know, it's just that kind of thing of going on a walk with a two-year-old. And when we got there, she was too little to put the milk jug in, so I had to pick her up. Then she'd throw the milk jug in. Then I'd put her in my empty barrel and carry her back. You know, it's just the thing we did. Um, why? Why did I take the time to do that? Because I loved my daughter. I wanted to spend time with her. And I wanted to give her a vision for the way that I viewed the world and the things that were important to me and to her mother. So this became our routine. Then after months of this, one day I was busy getting ready to go speak somewhere or something. Ran in, grabbed the recycling, ran down, dumped it in, came back, and my daughter was in a puddle of tears in the floor in the kitchen. She could not believe that I took the recycling out without her. Devastated. Why? She liked to work. She liked to spend time with her father. She liked to participate in the things that were important to me, and she liked to be with me. And this is the difference if you have an identity that's constructed off of all of this busyness, if you have a religion or a relationship with God that's constructed off all of this busyness, this is the difference. That if I came to you and said, I'm going to start a new religion, and you have to carry a milk jug down the street once a week, and made a rule like that, it would immediately become burdensome and legalistic and dusty and dry and pathetic. What God does is he, he steps into our world and he creates us in such a way that we have responsibilities, that we reflect his image, but he, he has real things for us to do. Our dependency does not negate us from having responsibility. And so, what if it is this, that God could do what he has for you to do so much faster by himself and so much better without you? <laughs> without me, let me, I'll pick on myself here. Without me. Why does he allow me to be part of it? Why does he give me the milk jug to carry? Well, Scripture would tell us because He loves us, He wants to be with us, and He wants to give us a vision for His heart and for the world. And that's the foundation of our relationship with God. He started it, and it's who we are. We're made in His image to be in relationship with Him. And so, as Christians, the purpose of our lives is to participate in the goodness that God creates, not because we have to be there to do it, but because it allows us to catch a glimpse of his character and his nature that instills with us a deepening in our relationship with him. And so that's where we find ourselves at the end of the first evening when we talk about identity. Who am I? Made in the image of God. Child of God. Made for a relationship with God. What a great place to be. That I may be found in him. Got the access card. And that he would be in me. That I would live a life that glorifies him. My goal when I go to preach and speak places, specifically campuses, is that I would, uh, if they don't remember anything else, I want them to think, man, I bet it's fun to be a Christian. Is it not? If you're a Christian, is it not like the best thing ever? Yeah, a great way to live life. And so if you've known that and that's true for you, laugh about it. Embrace it. Put a little caffeine in your song. <laughs> Write a psalm. Right out of that, sing to the Lord was the response to that. But if it's not you, and you've been tempted by it, and pushed and pulled by it, by something bigger than you working on it, 
that's available for you too.